Christ has risen. Christ has risen. Christ is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen. Y'all do remember from last week, don't you? That uh, I, I wanted to see if you remembered uh, what I expected of you uh, in response to that from last week, but also because it's still true. And also because it is so important for us to remember that it is still true. The broken world surrounds us, and it is easy enough for us to become discouraged when we hear the news or watch the news or uh, check out anything online about stuff happening in our own communities and around the world. The brokenness of the world can be very heavy at times, and sometimes it's, it's easy for us to sort of forget that Christ is risen and Christ is risen indeed and that that makes all the difference in the world. It's easy enough for us to become discouraged and uh, to become even a little apathetic in how we follow Jesus because we look at the world around us and it's heartbreaking and it's frustrating and we don't always know how it is that our efforts at following Jesus are making a difference in the world. You know, we boldly proclaim that Christ is risen, and then circumstances in our lives, either personal or or communal at a local level or even a global level, can pull us right back into wondering, is this really true? And if it is, what difference does it make? We, We will boldly say that we'll follow Jesus, And then we are quick to fail in doing what God asks us to do, namely, to love. When this happens, it can be hard for us to remember that God's purpose and God's heart are bigger than our mistakes. They're bigger than our failures. They're bigger than even our struggle to know how to love God well. Maybe that resonates with you today. Maybe you resonate with Peter's story, which we're going to talk about today. And if it does, I invite you to hold on to your questions and your your wonderings and your frustration. Maybe hold on to those mistakes and failures, the times you know that you have denied Christ, the times that you know that your actions have disappointed Christ. Just hold those loosely in front of you as we look at the heart of our loving and merciful God. Let us pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive your word to us today, that it would take hold of us and transform us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 21 starting with verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So in in this text, after these things, uh, these things being that that Jesus has appeared to the disciples already the previous week, they're they're 
thinking about all that has happened over the course of the last couple of weeks of their lives that uh, we talked about last week. Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and there was this emotional high of the potential for salvation in, in Christ, and then things unraveled as the week went on, and the Passover meal that Jesus shares with the disciples and changes things for them in, in that Passover meal. Jesus is crucified. He is, he's tried. He's crucified. He's dead. And, and, and then a week uh, later, he has appeared to the disciples, once with Thomas absent and once with Thomas present. And then finally here again, after these things, Jesus shows himself to them again by the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. Their, their grief and their loss is still very fresh for them. They're still trying to make sense of all of the things that have happened and figure out uh, where to go and, and what to do. I imagine they're replaying conversations that Jesus had with them. Uh, Jesus tried over the course of time to prepare them for what would happen, and I imagine at this point they're trying to recall what he said and make sense of what he had said. They're still trying to figure out what life means for them. And, you know, I, I think in the initial days of grief, the initial weeks of grief, which really has no timetable, a, a lot of time and energy is spent just going through the motions, just getting up every day and doing the things that need to be done and taking care of business and remembering to, to breathe, right? In, in that grief and in that loss, you're not always uh, thinking very far beyond just the immediate moment. Sometimes the disciples get criticized for going fishing, at this point, going fishing, uh, that was their livelihood before they followed Jesus. And some have said, well, yeah, they, they don't know what to do. They're going fishing as if they've given up on all that Jesus has asked them to do. But I wonder if they're going fishing because it's familiar and because it is comforting and because they can do it without having to think about anything. Perhaps you have something like that, too, that's kind of your go-to comfort activity or, or something that you can do that, that provides a, a sense of peace and, and rhythm for you. I wonder if the disciples simply went fishing because that's what they knew how to do. They're fishing in, on the Sea of Galilee. Here's a, a picture, uh, a, probably a, a boat similar to this with big nets. They didn't have fishing poles like we would fish with, but a, a big net that they would throw over to catch all of the fish. And they caught nothing. You notice the text says they caught nothing that whole night. But then as the light of the day comes, here's what happens. Uh, just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes for he was naked and jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. 
And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The third time in the Gospel of John. Here's a a picture from the actual Sea of Galilee. This shoreline is uh, around the location that they believe this breakfast could have taken place. We were there in 2014. We'll be there again in 2019 if you want to go with us. Uh, You'll get to stand on this beach and walk in this water and imagine looking out onto the Sea of Galilee and seeing Jesus there. This church is, uh, th- that shoreline is just on the other side of that, that back wall. You can't read that little sign, but it says Mensa Christi, and it's uh, marking a place that is a big rock outcropping uh, that they've marked as one of the possible places where Jesus prepared that fish and fed the disciples that morning. This building is right there on the shoreline. Not very far uh, north of that on that same property is another church called the Church of Multiplication. Uh, Another site, you can see the rock under the altar table. Uh, Another potential place along that shoreline where Jesus cooked breakfast for the disciples. This is the mosaic that's in the floor. You can see the fish and the bread. That this was a significant place where Jesus met the disciples. This would have also been a place very close to where the other feeding miracles had taken place, where Jesus takes a couple of fish and loaves of bread and feeds 5,000 people, feeds 4,000 people. This is not very far, maybe 20 miles from Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine. The miracles of catching this large number of fish and of Jesus feeding them and of the location point all of us to the fact that Jesus creates abundance where we believe there is scarcity. Where we have nothing, Jesus provides everything. Where where we're worried about what we don't have, Jesus gives us, makes more than enough. With Jesus, even beyond death, with Jesus, the risen Christ, we receive what we need to do the work that God has for us. With Christ, there is always abundance. So the scene is familiar too in, in the sense, maybe you, you saw it, right, that he, he came and took the bread and gave it to them, right? At first they didn't recognize him. He takes the bread, he gives it to them. The communion scene, remember last week on the road to Emmaus with those two uh, disciples and they didn't recognize him until he broke the bread, and gave it to them. Communion with the risen Christ that always has community as a part of it. And out of communion and out of community, there is always the continued mission. There is always work for us to do. Even when we come here and gather for communion, we're sent back out into the world having received Christ to take Christ. Not just that the story ends when we leave the building, it's only beginning Even in these scenes, the communion with Christ, the risen Christ, the community of that shared experience, and then the being sent out uh, into the world for the mission. And here's the verses that Roxy read as well. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? 
He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This story, this very tender encounter with Peter, we need context for. This is exactly where Carson's uh, question comes into play. Perhaps you know the story of Peter's denial of Christ. Roxy told us pieces of that. Perhaps you've uh, read over that, but just a couple of weeks before this scene, when they're at the Passover meal together, Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter said to him, though all become deserters because of you, I will never desert you. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. After this, they go to the Mount of Olives and they spend some time in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then this happens. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant girl came to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before all of them saying, I do not know what you are talking about. When he went out to the porch, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you are also one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to curse, and he swore an oath. I do not know the man. At that moment, the cock crowed. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter, so bold and so brave, so impetuous and so broken. Peter, very much like all of us, I love Carson's answer about do disciples make good choices or bad choices. And if, I don't know if you heard Carson. He said, well, it uh, depends on the circumstances, <clears throat> right? All of us make good choices and not so good choices. Even as followers of Christ, we sometimes don't make very good choices. <clears throat> we say, I'm in, Jesus. I'm in. I'm your person, I will go where you lead me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. These other people, they may let you down, but not me. I'm all in. And then it happens. And the rubber meets the road. We have an opportunity to stand up for Jesus and to speak truth. We have an opportunity to choose love an opportunity to welcome the stranger, to offer hospitality to the stranger, those who are different from us and those who are new to us. We have an opportunity to stand with and for the least and the last and the lost. And, you know, we use that phrase a lot. I don't know what that phrase means to you, but 
Maybe the least and the last and the lost for you are the homeless, or those who live in poverty, or those who are drug addicts, or those who are in prison. Maybe it is uh, the people that other people are making fun of, or that get demeaned within our society, or that get shunned, or maybe it's the refugees or the orphans. I don't, I don't know what that phrase means to you, but it means something to you. When you think about who you would say the least and the last and the lost are, you know who that is for you. We have an opportunity to wash someone's feet or to care for our brothers and sisters or to be kind in word and deed. We have opportunities every day to trust God for our daily bread and to forgive others, and we don't. Instead, we make poor choices, and we run away, we turn away, We come up with some reason why we can't, and we keep our mouths closed and our hearts closed and our doors closed, and we hold so tightly to what we think is ours and what we are entitled to that we miss it when Jesus keeps going and we're not following. Sometimes we make poor choices by not doing what Jesus asks us to do. Sometimes we make poor choices by doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus asks us to do. It happens in small ways and in large ways. And for most of us, knowing that we've said that we're going to follow Jesus and that we aren't doing so creates a sense of discomfort within us, an unrest within us as we deny Christ and as we fail to do what he asks us to do over and over again. Sometimes we are tempted to believe that we're unable to follow, or we water down what we think Jesus wants us to do in such a way that it really doesn't make any difference in the world around us. Or we put conditions on it, right? Jesus tells me to forgive. Well, I'll forgive Suzanne because I like Suzanne, but Jim, I don't, I don't know about Jim right? Or Jesus says, love one another. Okay, well, I'll love one another as long as they're kind to me. But if they're mean to me, then I'm writing them off, right? There's no conditions on what Jesus asks us to do when it comes to loving one another, and yet we try to impose them. Sometimes in the midst of that, we wonder if Jesus surely isn't just done with us, if we're not able to live up to making the good choices. And then we come to this story with Peter. Jesus has fed Peter and now fully restores Peter, even as Peter had so fully betrayed and denied him. Carson, this is where the three times comes in. In the story, when Peter denies Jesus three times, he denies him. And three times Jesus says to him, do you love me? The restoration and the redemption is complete. For everything that we do that's a choice away from following Jesus, Jesus offers restoration into right relationship, total restoration and redemption. Do you love me, Jesus says. Peter would also remember that at the Passover meal, Jesus says this, let me give you a new command, love one another. In the same way I loved you, you love one another. This is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples, when they see that you, the love you have for each other. 
Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Do you love me? Love one another. Jesus is talking to Peter, but he's really talking to all of us. Do you love me? I know that you have denied me and betrayed me. I know that you're going to keep doing that. But do you love me? Then love one another. This week I read, far more important than Peter's denials is the grace of Christ, the divine willingness to engage and entrust the ministry even to someone whose life so far has been marked by impetuosity and denial. That's us. Far more important than our denials is the grace of Christ. I also read this text awakens memories of the darkness, the darkness of our hunger, the darkness of our failure to recognize Christ, and the darkness of our denial. But at the same time, it reminds us that none of this darkness has overcome the light. For the risen Christ still calls, still feeds, still empowers, even doubters and deniers. The risen Christ still issues the invitation Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, he says this to Peter, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. After all of this, he says, follow me. This is how he first invited the disciples into relationship with him. In the Gospels, when you read about Jesus calling his disciples, this is what he says, follow me. At the end of this encounter with the disciples and Peter, this is what he says, follow me. It's what he says to us even now. The mission continues. And Jesus says, Follow me. Jesus knows we're not going to always get it right. Jesus knows we're not always going to make good choices. But invites us still, meets us where we are still, feeds us still, restores us completely still, loves us still, and still, imperfect as we are, sends us out into the world, saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Then follow me and love one another. Let us pray. Loving God, sometimes we forget that your heart and your mercy are so much bigger than anything that we've done or not done. So much bigger than our best decisions and so much bigger than our worst decisions. We do boldly claim that you have risen and we do boldly claim that we follow you. Help us to live with such courage that we're able to boldly love all whom you put in our path that when we encounter an opportunity to love you by loving others, to serve you by serving others, that we would take it with great joy and with gratitude for your love for us that meets us where we are, 
that feeds us and restores us and forgives us, and even in the midst of all of our imperfections, calls us still to be your hands and feet that carry the light into the darkness of the world, that carry your healing into the brokenness of the world. Pour out your spirit upon us now that we would know that in the depth of our being and that when you ask, do we love you, that we can say with all that we are that indeed we do and that we will willingly follow where you lead so that others might know you too. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.